0: Uh, Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, please. Acts chapter 10. Uh, The text we're going to look at this morning is uh, verses 34 through 43. But I want to read to you verses 1 through 24 just to set up the background for verses 34 through 43. So we read from, uh, again, Acts chapter 10 beginning with verse 1. And it begins, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and he said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything uh, common or unclean. You see here, Peter was a good Jewish boy. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, Peter, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had just seen, meant... "'Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius "'had made inquiry for Simon's house "'and stood before the gate. "'And they called and they asked whether Simon, "'whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. "'While Peter thought about the vision, "'the Spirit said to him, "'Behold, three men are seeking you. "'Arise therefore, go down and go with them, "'doubting nothing, for I have sent them.' "'Then Peter went down to the men "'who had been sent to him from Cornelius "'and said, "'Yes, I am he whom you seek.' For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning to thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your beautiful word, your wonderful son. And Father, in the words of Alan Redpath, we thank you for sending your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came. And Holy Spirit, teach us more about his lovely name. And so, Lord, we pray that the Spirit would invade this place, that He would be welcome here, that He would invade our hearts, that He'd open our ears and our minds to to reason with the mind that God has given us, the brain that He's given us, that we would uh, see clearly, that, God, You would remove any scales from eyes this morning, and that, God, we would just see clearly, God, the Word that You left for us that we might come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord, He is Savior, He is God. So Lord, we look to you now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in verses 1 through 24, the background is set up for our text this morning. And what is taking place is an amazing thing, Uh, uh, a change in God dealing with men. When Cornelius became, uh, or when the Gentiles it is, became part of the early church. You see, up to this time, the spiritual blessings of God had been most, uh, almost totally uh, reserved for the Jewish people. But in this chapter, it begins the incident, which we just read here in verses uh, 1 through 24, the incident that uh, will include the Gentiles into the gospel. So Peter now was about to open that door of faith to the Gentiles, bringing them into the body of Christ. Peter now was about to break down those ancient barriers, that wall that divided the Jew from the Gentile. But you see, God had to prepare Peter and Cornelius both before this could take place. Cornelius, as we read, was a a Roman centurion. Uh, His heart had become tired of pagan myths. And, 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 you know, uh, empty religious rituals and, and had turned to Judaism hoping that he could find salvation. So Cornelius was as close to Judaism as he could get without becoming a proselyte. Now, there were many God-fearing people just like him there at that time in the old ancient world. And they proved to be, because they were open and they were hungry, they, they proved to be a, a ripe harvest ready for, a again, a spiritual harvest. But Cornelius shows us how religious a person can be and still not be saved. And that's important for all of us to understand this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer yet, this message, if you're a thinker, an honest thinker, you can't help but come to a believing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so be honest with yourself this morning as the evidence will be displayed or should be laid out before you. Again, it shows how religious a person can be and still not be saved. Cornelius was definitely sincere in his his obedience to God, in in obedience to God's law. Uh, in his fasting, in his prayers, his generosity to the Jewish people. He, was, he wasn't allowed, because, because he wasn't a Jew, he wasn't allowed to offer his sacrifices in the temple. So he presented his prayers to God as his sacrifice. In every way, Cornelius is a type or a model of a respectable religious person. And we have a lot of respectable religious people in the world today. Yet, he wasn't a saved man. You see, the difference between, between Cornelius and many religious people today is this. Cornelius knew. Cornelius knew that his religious devotion was not enough to save him. And there's a lot of religious people today who are just satisfied thinking that they're okay. They're satisfied with their character. I'm a good person. I've never hurt anybody. I, I, you know, I don't steal. I don't do this. I don't do that. You know, I, I've done good works. I do the best that I can. And with all of that put together, I, I think God would allow me into heaven. Yet they have no idea about their own sin or God's great grace. And in Cornelius's prayers, he was asking God, Lord, show me the way to salvation. So God speaks to Cornelius while he was praying. And while Peter was praying, God speaks to him in a vision about this whole situation. And so God told Cornelius, He says, I want you to send some men to Joppa. And now, when you get there, I want you to seek out a man called Peter. And, you know, after Cornelius' vision, he did exactly what God had told him to do. He sends men to look for Peter. And then when he gets to uh, Joppa, you know, and then there, there's Peter, uh, he's having a, a, a vision. And God tells Peter, he says, you know what? He says, there are going to be some men coming to you, looking for you. And when they do, I want you to go with them to his house. He says, I've sent them. So uh, I want them to hear the words, Peter, that you have to tell them. So with that background, let's look at uh, verse 33 through 35. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Let's look at the beginning of verse 33. This is Cornelius speaking. He says, We are all present before God. Again, his friends, his relatives, he called them over so they could hear the gospel. He says, We are here to hear all the things commanded you by God. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, listen, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. God had revealed to Peter in his dream, Peter, I'm not a respecter of persons, whether Jew or Gentile. If they live righteously before me, I will make them a son or a child of God. You see, Peter had always thought because he was a Jew, like many of the Jews, that, that he had a very favored status with God. And God had really you know, entered into a covenant relationship with the Jews through Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and his descendants, which are the children of Israel. But the covenant was only good if Israel became a holy nation, which we know um, most of the time they they weren't. Uh, Israel was to be a light to the Gentile world, but the darkness of the Gentile world came into the nation of Israel, and they did not become a a very good witness of God to the pagan nations. Besides that, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, Both have unconditional promise that God made only to the Hebrew people. Promises that God still intends to make good to Israel one day. But the individual Jew was a man like anybody else. He needed a personal relationship with God. Peter, in his vision, suddenly saw that a righteous, God-fearing Gentile was just as acceptable to God as a righteous, God-fearing Jew there was no longer any difference paul said later in galatians 3:28 there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you are all one in christ jesus now there was a high point of the revelation that peter had it started with the vision that peter had of the sheet when it came down and all the you know things that were upon that and and then the door for the total breakdown of the wall uh, begin with that to sep- that separated at that time the Jew and the Gentile. Look at verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Peter's sermon seems to be a short version of what the apostles preached. And a review of Mark's gospel is often thought to be a reflection of Peter's pe- preaching Peter seems to assume that his listeners living like they did in Palestine had some general knowledge about the story of Jesus Christ like many people do they just have a general knowledge of Jesus Christ but he reminded his Gentile listeners in verse 36 notes, that the word the word was originally sent by God to the children of Israel and for thousands of years, God has spoke through the prophets only to Israel. His last word had been sent to Israel. It was a word of peace, it says in verse 36. In other words, it had been brought down to earth by Jesus Christ through the incarnation. He was the word that was brought down. He is the living word who came to earth. Peter said, he's the one who is Lord of all. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. The Word in the flesh. And in Jesus Christ, the Word had been made flesh. God had transformed deity into humanity. God became man, the living Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ had come to bring men to God's great offer of peace and salvation. Then Peter, he started pointing people Those that were in the house of Cornelius, Cornelius, his friends, his relatives, he began to point them to Jesus Christ, and that's who we need to point them to. We need to remember that. We don't point them to a church. We don't point them to a pastor. We don't point them to anything but Jesus Christ because he's the one who has what we need. It's important that we we remember that. That was the main point of Peter's message, not Judaism, not some religion or list of rules. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 37. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism with John, which John preached. So he says, that word you know, you'd heard about it. You heard about this Jesus who was crucified. And as Paul would say later to King Agrippa, this thing was not done in a corner of the world somewhere. This wasn't done for just where just a few people knew about it. It it wasn't done in a corner somewhere. John the Baptist, man, he had created such a stir from one end of the nation to the other with his preaching of Jesus Christ. He began to preach the the, the coming of the Lord. And and he said, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thousands would come to hear John the Baptist preach from all over the land. They came to hear what he had to say about the Messiah, the Messiah. And they were being baptized in the Jordan as well. When he was arrested by Herod, the people knew the reason that he was arrested and they knew why John the Baptist was murdered. It was well known by everybody. But the great responsibility that John had as a prophet of God was to preach that there was another that was coming. And John said, hey, this one that is coming is so much greater than I, I'm not even fit to untie his shoes. The Messiah. And the Messiah was officially announced to the nation by John, John the Baptist. And for the next three and a half years, or I should say for three and a half years, Jesus marched from one end of the other of the land of Israel. And he was preaching the word of God. But he was preaching it much different than anybody had ever heard. He was preaching in a particularly unforgettable and undiluted way. It wasn't watered down like it is so much today in many places. Jesus spoke with authority, and he spoke like no, no other man spoke. He didn't speak like the scribes. The scribes of usually uh, share things that they had heard from rabbis or, or other speakers. or They were just passing on things that they heard. But Jesus came. Remember, they said, who, you know, who is this man? He speaks like nobody we've ever heard before. That's because it was coming from the heart of God. Jesus laid down principles for holy living in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a list of things that we do. It's a list of things that we are to be, which is a big difference. He told stories. Jesus told stories called parables that told the truth in a clear and unforgettable way. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, removed the curtain regarding the future. We, you know, Henry was talking about a minute ago that the signs are all around us, the, the future when, 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 when Christ is going to come for his church and the end times come. Jesus removed that veil in Matthew 24. And Jesus fearlessly condemned the religious leaders of that day, the religious establishment, for rejecting him. And Jesus boldly claimed to be the Son of God. And then Jesus taught the crowds and the disciples. He taught that the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. And he told the people, look, practice and obey what they tell you, but don't practice what they do. He says, because they tell you to follow their example. Uh, they, but he says, they they tell you to do this, but they don't do it. And, and, and he said, you know, he says, whatever they do, it's all for show. It's just a religious display. But again, there's no truth in their hearts for God. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? And he called them hypocrites and a brood of vipers. Can you imagine how the eyes mushed the bulge and the ears perked out? Because they were the religious cream of the crop of that day. They were the ones that everybody was to follow at that time. They were the ones that everybody, you know, said, they're, they're, they're so close to God. And here's Jesus calling them snakes. I mean, that just must have blown their minds. And then he warned them. He said, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus was leading them to a higher standard. It wasn't religion and rules. It was a relationship with himself. Verse 38. He said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Notice, Who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It wasn't what Jesus said that proved that he was a man who was set apart from all other men. It's not what Jesus said that that proved that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and that he was uniquely walking with God. It was what he had done. You see, and that's something important to remember. It's not what we say. It's what we do that makes us a witness to Jesus Christ. Peter said, he went about doing good. Think about that. Jesus went about doing good. I mean, What an epitaph to put on your gravestone. I know I could never put that on there, but only Jesus could. He went about doing good. Peter was summing up his impression of the amazing three and a half years that he spent with Jesus. Man, I spent three and a half years with him, and all he did was go around and do good. A great epitaph. In his life, that is the life of Christ, Jesus performed mighty miracles that showed that he was God, that demonstrated his deity. And and then there was an endless series of documented, fully authenticated miracles that were performed under all conditions on all kinds of cases, setting people free from the oppression and possession of the devil. And the fame of all of these things that Jesus did had reached the four corners of the earth at that time. So people talked about the living word. They talked about Christ. They talked about the word that, as John put it, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this is Peter's beginning, man, to the, all those that are in Cornelius' house. Can you imagine how those Gentile listeners must have been listening? And I pray that the Spirit of God would grab your heart and your ears and that you would just be blown away as the Spirit begins to minister to your heart. Look at the first part of verse 39 now. Peter says, and we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Peter is saying, Cornelius and household, all of you listen. He says, it's fully authenticated by us 11 witnesses, us men who spent crucial years in the company of the Son of God. He's saying to them, look, we went where Jesus went. We lived where Jesus lived. We saw everything that Jesus did. We heard everything that Jesus said. We are witnesses of of His actions. We heard His conversations. We saw His character every day and every night. We are totally credible witnesses. We've been chosen with the same care that our our courts today would choose in choosing a trial jury. And if you're an attorney... What is the best witness you can have? An eyewitness jury, an eyewitness who has seen the event that's being tried in court. You can't get anything better than an eyewitness jury. They were truly meant to be a type of a jury, chosen from different classes of men, men from different backgrounds, different educations and ages. For example, John was young and impressionable. Peter was a hardworking, impulsive fisherman. Simon Zelotes, he was from that passionate company of the zealots whose political objectives were to free the country from Roman rule. Nathaniel and Thomas, they were inclined to be skeptics like a lot of us many times are. Matthew had been a hard-nosed businessman. He was a tax collector. He was on Rome's payroll, collecting the taxes from Rome and then pocketing some for himself. His own countrymen thought, man, what a traitor he is. He's a traitor to his own country. Andrew had an attractive personality because he went around and bringing people to Jesus. He was, you know, one of those guys who was bringing everybody to meet Christ. And then we have Philip. He was kind of an analyst. He was calculating. You know, he was figuring everything out. You know, James was a businessman. So we have all of these different men that were there who had seen and lived with Jesus for three and a half years who were witnesses of all of these things. Peter assured Cornelius there in that first part of verse 39, he said, Cornelius, we are witnesses of all these things. Peter said, look, you guys, me and the other guys, we witnessed the reality of Christ. All of the wonderful stories told about Jesus Christ in the Gospels were true. The things that Jesus said as they're recorded in the Gospels, are true. All 36 miracles that Jesus performed later on recorded in the Gospels, they're true. And the countless others that are grouped together in short form, they're true. Keep in mind, look at Peter as he's standing in Cornelius' house and he's looking out at the guests and Cornelius and the relatives and he's telling him these things. He's telling him, look, Jesus did change water into wine. I know, I drank some of it. Jesus did walk on water, you guys, and so did I when Jesus commanded me to come to him. Jesus did raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. I was there for that too. I saw the whole thing. Jesus cleansed lepers. He even cast out some of the most ferocious demons I have ever seen. I personally saw all of those things, you guys. I saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain in his glorified body. I saw that too. I was there. It's all true. So there's something encouraging about Peter's words there. In verse 39, he said, You guys, we are witnesses. We saw it all. And if Peter had been telling lies, there was a whole generation that was still alive at that time that was able to stand up and say, Hey, Peter's nuts. You know, Peter's just, you know, he's just not with it today. But no." Nobody stood up and, and, and challenged him. Nobody, you know, they would have been able to say, "No, it's not true." But that's not the case. Peter was telling the honest to God truth. The life and the miracles of Jesus of Nazareth. He said in verse thirty-nine. Notice, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they were done everywhere. It was public knowledge. It was so well authenticated by public opinion that his words did not need to be verified. Almost everybody knew the general outline of the story to be true. They'd heard of it throughout the land. Peter and the other ten disciples were special witnesses because they had been with him all the time. C.S. Lewis, who offered the many books, but in particular this, what I'm going to share with you, he, he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. And this is where we have to start putting on the thinking cap. He said, we have to take reality as it comes to us. We can talk all day long about what something should be like or what we would have expected it to be like. For example, when something happens, let's just test my heart, my wife's heart attack on on Tuesday. Now, when it really comes to it, I I have to accept it as it is. We can talk all about, all about like what it should be like. Well, you know, she should have never had that. Why did this? I wouldn't have ever expected that to happen. I think it, we, and we can go on like that all we want. on. But that's my own idea, my own opinion. And see, we do that with Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know why, why, why did God, you know, have Eve bite the apple or the take the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat. Why did God do that? Why didn't he do it another? Why this? Why that? Well, I don't think God. That's my own opinion. That's my own thinking. We need to accept the reality for what it is. Because God is in control. Even though I cannot see why it should be the way it is. Even though I can't understand why something happens in my life or my wife or or anything in my life. God is in control. But I can tell you why I believe it happened. Because He's God. God. And it seems clear as a matter of history that Jesus taught his followers that the new life was commanded in this way through him. In other words, I believe it on his authority. His authority. Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told about them by somebody that you think is trustworthy. You live your whole life like that. Why not when it comes to believing in Jesus Christ? C.S. Lewis says ninety-nine percent of the things you believe are, be- are-, are-, are are believed on authority. For example, let's see, I, I picked something out that I had thought of. Which okay, I, I've heard that there's a place called Timbuktu. I think, why would somebody name a place Timbuktu? That wouldn't have been what I did, you know, I wouldn't have, but again, that's my opinion, that's my thinking, and yet I can't say, well, yeah, I don't believe it because it doesn't fit my way of thinking. I've never been there, I've never seen it, but it exists. I can't prove it by theoretical reasoning that there should be such a place just because I can theoretically believe it. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. Do you all believe in the solar system? You ever been there? You believe in atoms and neutrons and protons and whatever else there is out there? Do you believe in the circulation of the blood? Why? Because some credible scientists have told you so. You see, every historical statement in the world is to believe on authority. None of us has seen the Norman conquest. Or the defeat of the Armada. But you see, credible authority documented it all and has told us so. How many of you, you, for the most part, well, let me go back to when I was a kid in school, checked the the history books. What your kids are taught in history. History. I don't know that anybody's ever asked for the, uh, the 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 person that wrote the book or the people that that researched the material and, and said, okay well it, this is this is right on no we we trust that credible credible, credible people people who have authority on the subject have put the book together and we just say okay and we live with it we go with it none of us could prove again, that those things that existed, the Norman Conquest or the, or the defeat of the Amara, we couldn't prove that by pure logic. Like you could, something, you could prove something in mathematics. We believe them because people who did see them have left written records telling us all about them. We, in fact, live on authority. You do this every single day in your life. How many of you have ever flown on an airplane? Did you ever go and talk to the pilot? You ever find out where he was trained or if he was trained? Did you ever look at his health record? How much experience he had? Did you ever ask to check the flight records, the service record on the plane? I used to be a jet engine mechanic in Vietnam and I know what those things do. Did you ever check to see if it was last service was? or how many problems the plane had, or how many times it was grounded because of of, of problems. I watch people, because I hate flying, that's why I look at these people and they go, they're just tatting away and getting on that plane. I mean, just as sure as can be that they're going to get to their destination, and yet they haven't researched anything. And yet when we have some of the greatest and most authoritative documentation, documentation that Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he resurrected and he's coming back for us again and one day we're, we're going to go to heaven or hell, the most important thing we need to know, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I, how can you believe the Bible? How can you trust the Bible? Because you have authoritative documentation that's been left for us so that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord. How important it is that we use the same everyday thing. How many of you call up to your job every Monday or through the week and find out if it's still there to make sure that, okay, you know. No, you live by faith. You get in your car. You go down there because you believe it's going to be there. We do that every day. We live by faith all day, every day of the week. Because we live on fact. Verse 30, The second part of verse 39 now. Well, let's go ahead and read the whole verse and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the jews and in jerusalem knows whom they killed by hanging on a tree because the 11 disciples here remember judas is out of the picture at this point because they were uh, these 11 disciples were witnesses to everything that, that 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 they saw peter here now charges the jews okay with the crucifixion of jesus christ but the romans were involved too it's well known that, again, the Jews killed people by stoning, but hanging on a tree was a Roman form of execution. So indirectly, while Peter's blaming the murder of the innocent man, which was no ordinary man, but the Son of Man and the Son of the Living God, he was you know um, blaming primarily the Jews, it was Pontius Pilate, in the end, who signed the death warrant that... that, that you know, he, even he had said over and over again, you know, I, I can't find any fault in this man. It goes back to what does it say that Peter said? He went about doing good. They couldn't find any fault. His own wife said, look, I had a dream last night. <laughs> Leave this man alone. The chosen witnesses had seen the death of Jesus Christ. Peter was there at one of the mock trials. John was there almost to the very end of that horrible scene until Jesus passed on the care of his mother to John. And that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth had died on a Roman cross, cursed by the Jews, was and is a historical fact. Verse 40 through 41. Now, he says, Him, speaking of Christ, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Peter now is coming to the crux, the heart of the message. He's coming to the greatest fact of all. And we just celebrated that greatest fact last Easter. The resurrection, the heart of all of the apostles preaching and you see, this is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. And that's why Jesus Christ is the most important person that you need to know. Because we, what sets us Christianity apart from all the other religions is because we don't preach a religion with all of its ceremonies and all of its rituals and all of its rules that go along with it. We preach a risen, living Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity doesn't say, hey, come and keep the commandments. Christianity doesn't say, or or comply with these ordinances, or or worship these relics, or or, or perform these penances, penances. Christianity says, come see a man. Come see a man. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, like everything else about him, was public knowledge in the country. As Paul said, it wasn't done in some corner, somewhere hidden in the world. The resurrection appearances by Jesus weren't made to everyone. But there were enough of them to convince any open-minded person that Jesus was alive from the dead. And I said like from the beginning, if you're a thinker, you, you must believe. If you're an honest thinker, you can't help but come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is God. being open-minded enough to to put away all of your perceived uh, uh, thoughts and notions, preconceived notions and ideas. Whatever I've heard in this world, whatever I think I know, I need to listen to the truth. I need to make an educated decision based on the authenticated, documented reality of Jesus Christ. On one occasion, Jesus appeared to a group of more than 500 people Tell me what lawyer wouldn't like to have 500 eyewitnesses walk into the courtroom. Most of those people were still alive. Most of them were telling, telling uh, about the resurrection in Peter's time. Anything, any, any event endorsed by so many witnesses wouldn't need any further documentation in a court of law. The especially chosen witnesses, these 11 disciples had plenty of proof that Jesus was truly alive from the dead. The most prominent, as Peter suggested, was the fact that the resurrected man, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, actually sat down with them, ate with them, drank with them, talked with them, touched him. It wasn't some ghost they were seeing or talking to wasn't some vision they were having. They saw a living, physical, audible uh, man. The same Jesus that they had known and loved before he was cru- and was crucified was now alive from the dead. And he was now standing before them as real as ever. And when you open your heart to him, he will be as real to you As he was to Peter them at this moment. Verse 42. And he, Jesus, commanded us, the disciples, to preach to the people. And to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. But the murder and the following resurrection of Jesus Christ put the human race now in a terrifying dilemma. And this is especially important to you this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ. It puts you in a terrifying dilemma. God had sent His only begotten Son into the world. And Jesus had proven that He was God in a thousand ways. He had lived a sinless life. He left a life of nothing but love and good works. And men hated Him and they murdered Him. Jew and Gentile alike. But now He's back from the dead and we read there that God appointed him to be man's judge and guess what you don't have the last say Jesus does men as I said that don't know him should tremble in great fear this morning The troubling fact was that guilty men can't hope to escape the judgment of Christ. Nobody will escape the judgment of Christ. Like I said, Jesus will have the last word. And when you stand before him on that day, there will be no excuses accepted, especially for hearing the message this morning. doesn't matter how loud you scream or how how, how many tears you weep, no matter how much pleading you do. He'll say, Depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. You won't get another chance. That's why this moment is so important. Because you're not guaranteed. You're not, God forbid, you're not guaranteed getting home today. He holds our heart, our life, his our breath in his very hand. He's in control. God is definitely not going to let man get away with the murder and the rejection of his son forever verse 43 as we close to him that is Jesus all the prophets witness that through his name notice whoever open invitation believes in him that means to obey and to trust in him will receive remission of sins there's the good news There's the good news. God has delayed His judgment for over 2,000 years. And He's been pouring out His grace instead for over 2,000 years. Because God is giving men a chance to change their minds, to seek His mercy and His grace, and to come to the living Savior, and to receive forgiveness of their sins from Him instead of well-deserved hell, because that's what we deserve. God is, God's word says he's not willing that any man should perish. God doesn't, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And if we, anybody does, it's not that God sent him. It's that they chose to by rejecting the offer of salvation. The most important thing is to believe in him. And the word actually means to trust and to obey him. Not, to, not just to give an intellectual acknowledgement. Yeah, I believe that Jesus lived at one time. Oh, I believe that Jesus existed. That's not what it means. It means to wholeheartedly trust the living Son of God. This is what Peter's message was all about. Peter, at this point, again, picture him. He's in Cornelius' house. He's facing, kind of like I'm facing you. And he's talking to Cornelius and his relatives and his friends. And he's saying, Now, you are faced with a decision. What are you going to do? With the resurrected man, what are you going to do with this man called Christ? They had to do something now. Would they just walk out the door now and go, "Man, that was that was cool." What Peter had to say, like a lot of people do when they leave church, "Oh, that was a neat message." But what will you do with the message? You're faced with a decision. How they had to do something about this wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so do you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, and no one is pretty easy to understand. Some people say the Bible's hard to understand. No one will come to the Father except by me. Well, wait a minute, Joe. Isn't that kind of narrow? You bet. But it's wide enough for everybody to come. How many times have we heard, well, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's many roads that lead to heaven. Oh, no, there's not. If I invited you to my house for dinner this weekend, I said, hey, you know, I, you're, all, you're all invited. You say, well, what's your address? I said, take any road. They'll lead you there. <laughs> exactly. You see how ridiculous that statement is. That's why God left us... Th- an authenticated, documented record of who Jesus is, so that when He came, we wouldn't mistake Him for any other Savior, so-called Savior, or religious leader. What about Buddha? What about Krishna? What about Muhammad? What about Gandhi or whoever? He says, they were all good religious guys. Yeah, good is not the question. Were they perfect? There was but one perfect There's but one who died upon the cross for our sins. Not only that, the rest of them are in their tombs still. Jesus has risen. And when Jesus said, I am the way, he eliminated every other way. Forget about it. Because he died upon the cross for our sins. Nobody else. He's the truth. The only truth. And he's the only way, the eternal way. we got to come God's way. It's important that we understand that. Then Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say on that day, to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who break God's laws. Can you imagine? Those people going all their life, maybe like Cornelius, who was a, uh, you know, uh, who wanted to know God and, and, and got as close as he could to God, but knew that it, it, he, there was to be more. And those who claim, well, you know what? You worship your way, I'll worship my way. You better worship the right way. The way, Jesus Christ. Because on that day, you start to claim to Jesus, well, you know, Jesus, I, you know, I went to church every day, and I did this in your name, and I gave in your name, and I, you know, I went here in your name. He's going to go, huh, I never knew you. And when he says, I never knew he doesn't mean that he doesn't know who you are. He knows all of us. But when he says, I never knew he means in, in, a, in terms of a personal relationship. Notice again, it, it's not what, what everyone says, but what everyone does. It's not what you say about Jesus. Oh, yeah, you know, I like Jesus, and I like Bible studies. No, it's what you do about Jesus. What are you going to do with him? That's the key this morning. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open that door, I will come into him and have fellowship with him and he with me. And Jesus has been knocking at the door of your heart this morning. Will you ignore the knock? Or will you open the door? There's a story about an art exhibit where this man had painted a picture of Jesus knocking at the door. And I've seen them. You've probably seen those pictures in Christian bookstores. Jesus knocking at the door. But in this particular picture, the man that was observing the picture, he looked, he was studying, there's something wrong with this picture. And he looks, and, and he saw. And he told the, the man who painted it, who was there, you know, answering questions. He said, wait a minute, sir. He says, you left something out of, the, out of your picture. And he goes, what was that? What's that? And he says, well, there's no doorknob on the door. He says, well, young man, he says, that's because it has to be opened from the inside. And you see, that's what Jesus wants you to do. He's not going to knock the door down. You know, that's the only limitation that God has. Your will. Your will. God will allow you to reject him. Because if you're going to love him, he wants it to be because you love him, because you know him, because you have a relationship with him. So will you open that door this morning?